0: Thanksgiving travel surges to near pre pandemic levels. And I'll talk with Crane's reporter Ali Moradi about a new tech tool that could help impress clients or a date
1: at restaurants. You know, when I first read about this and was deciding if I should write a story, my very visceral reaction was man, the proletariat's going to uprise over this. <laughs> you know, we all see the CPI <laughs> numbers that come out. You know, the cost of food at restaurants is up over 8.5%.
0: I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, November 22nd. At Wintrust Community Banks, you're more than just another account number. No matter your stage of life, Wintrust's dependable bankers are as dedicated to your financial success as you are. After three decades of serving communities across Chicagoland, Wintrust has built its reputation on exceptional customer satisfaction and a strong local presence. That's why Wintrust is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in retail banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. Visit Wintrust.com slash J.D. Power to learn more about Wintrust's award-winning banking experience. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit J.D power.com/awards So we kind of all get the idea of airlines charging extra for a premium seat, but what about restaurants? I'm joined by Crane's reporter Ali Morati to talk about technology that allows restaurants to do that very thing. Ali, welcome back. Thanks for having me. You know, I kind of can't believe this didn't exist sooner, but you know, as soon as I, I saw you reporting on this, I, I thought it was super interesting, this idea of premium seat in a restaurant. But how are we defining a premium restaurant seat?
1: That's a great question, Amy. So it depends on the restaurant. It depends on the night. And it depends on the time of night as well. So let's talk about one of the restaurants that has incorporated this technology, which is River North Steakhouse Jean and Giorgetti, 82-year-old restaurant run by third-generation owner Michelle Derpetty. They are slowly integrating this, you know, being such a storied institution. She said, I want to go slow and sure with this. And they only have two booths available on this platform. And the platform itself is called Tables with a Z. It's a startup tech company that isn't really based anywhere because everybody's remote. But basically how it works is the restaurant will integrate the technology into their homepage. So when you as the customer go to make your reservation via their website, it'll say, do you want to choose your table? And then you can go in, look at the time slot, pick your day, pick your table, and see how much it's going to charge you. So Gene and Georgetti, they only put two boobs on there. One is the Frank Sinatra booth, which (laughs) you know whose table that was. The other one is the VIP booth. And that booth has sat a lot of celebrities from Vince Vaughn to Will Ferrell to Fleetwood Mac, etc. And I went in and just plugged in a Friday night in a couple of weeks. I think I did December 2nd. Sitting at the Frank Sinatra booth will cost you $25 at 8 p.m. on that Friday. If you want to sit there sooner at 6 p.m., for example, it's only $20. If you want to sit there before 5.30, you don't have to pay anything to reserve that. So what you can see happening there is sort of this demand economy situation where, you know, people want to eat at 8 p.m. on a Friday night in a special booth, you're going to have to pay a little bit of a premium on it. Now, other restaurants, they choose different tables that they put on this platform. Not every table is, you know, the best table. Roka Accord, Japanese Steakhouse in River North, is another one doing it, and they told me that the window seats, basically, you know, there's these floor to ceiling windows. Oh,
0: sure. They've got those big windows. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: they're two tops. So it's maybe like a date night situation. He said those have become the most popular ones.
0: And again, it's exactly what we've come to expect from airlines. You know, do you want an aisle seat? Do you want to be like close to the front? Do you want that extra leg room? That's going to cost you. And I think, you know, over time, we've kind of accepted just that's the reality of airlines. So it makes sense that we would kind of be trying this out in the restaurant world. Are, are people pushing back on it, or are they like, okay, yeah, this is the the first class seat? I get it.
1: That was my first question. You know, when I first read about this and was deciding if I should write a story, my very visceral reaction was, man, the proletariat's going to uprise over this. <laughs> you know, right? Like it's one more thing. Inflation. Right, we've me. all seen. We all see the CPI numbers that come out. The cost of food at restaurants is up over eight and a half percent in October over a year ago. I think even since the pandemic, inflation aside, costs have gone up. You know, I was just having a conversation recently with a restaurant operator who was saying, you know, the fact that lunch is slower has caused prices to go up because they have to charge more to make it a viable business, you know. So we're seeing a lot of costs go up. My initial thought was that people are not going to want to do this, you know. Two of the restaurants I talked to said that they haven't received much pushback, and part of the reason is because it is completely optional. Like I said, not every table you have to pay for. You know, you can go at an earlier time, sit at a different table, whatever. You don't have to do it at all. The founder of the company, Tables, he told me that typically restaurants put about 15 to 20% of their tables on this platform. I did talk to an expert, however, that said adding one more cost is going to prohibit this technology from taking off in a broader sense. And he said it's because already these are at fancier sit-down restaurants. Maybe it'll get people that are celebrating a special occasion. It's an anniversary and they want to make sure that they get a nice table. But that's still not a ton of people. People that maybe aren't as impacted by inflation or not as worried about inflation So it's going to be interesting to see how much this takes off and how many other restaurants adopt it. But I will say that for restaurants, this is a new form of revenue, and that's very exciting for them.
0: Are there restaurants that are putting all of their tables on just to base it on time? Like, oh, if you want to get a table at the last minute during the dinner rush hour, that'll maybe cost you? Or is it generally just a fraction of the tables?
1: It's generally just a fraction of the tables, I'm told. And the pricing varies. And that's something that is fluid and the restaurant gets the final say on. I think that they test them out a little bit. Roca Accor, I think, said they started out just charging like 3 or $5 to see if people would do it. And then when they were doing it, they increased it a little bit. The owner um, and founder of Tables, he told me that Typically, customers pay between $5 to $100, and that's across the country. Roka Accor, for example, started testing this in their San Francisco location two years ago, and that's because San Francisco is a bit of a techie town, so they felt like it would have, you know, customers would be more willing to try it there. But Roka Accor expects to make an extra $5,000 off this in the first year, and he said that's pretty conservative. He thinks it has the potential to double.
0: I, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, again, it's like that airline model. I could especially see it being effective for places like Jean and Giorgetti that are like, if you want the Sinatra booth, it's going to cost you. I can see that. Or, you know, Accor in the if you want something on the window or if you want to be on the, the rooftop at some place or something like that. I think it'll be interesting to see how different restaurants use it as it goes a little more widespread, if it ends up being more on location of the table or timing of the table, or if it kind of is a a mix of the two.
1: Exactly. And two things I would say about that. First of all, I would pay a little extra, not a lot, but a little, to sit in front of a fireplace, for example, on a cold night. Fair. That's true. You know, the founder of tables was saying it totally depends, like having a quote unquote best table in the house is hard because your definition of best is going to change. And his example was, you know, if I take my mom out to dinner, she doesn't want to sit by the bathroom or by the door where there's a draft. You know, if I'm on a date, I want to sit at a certain spot. Maybe you want the spot that's by the kitchen so you can see the cooks doing their magic or whatever. Maybe you want the corner booth because you want to act like a mobster, you know, whatever (laughs) it is. It just is going to depend The other thing I was going to say is that with charging extra for this, it's really fascinating to me because when you look at the other examples of a concert venue, you know, paying extra for floor seats at the bowls, you know, whatever it may be, an airplane. I was thinking about this as I was writing the story, and that is true. But the difference is you're already paying for that ticket no matter what. You're paying for that seat no matter what. That's not necessarily the case at a restaurant. You know, yeah, you're paying for your food, but, you know, that's going to vary depending on what you eat. You're paying for the food. You're not paying to sit there.
0: That's a good point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A shift that I saw in the comparison.
0: I guess you're really paying then for certainty of, of a little bit of a guarantee of of what your experience will be. Exactly. And, you know,
1: Michelle Drapetti made this comparison where, you know, back in the day, you or maybe even still, there are a lot of people that still do this, I would maybe call it a bribe, but some people would just, you know, slip <laughs> a 20 spot to the host or hostess and ask. Oh, for the best sure. Table. Yeah. Her point was like, hey, people have always done that. And this is the same thing. It's just instead of that $20 going into the pocket of the host, it's going to the restaurant.
0: That's not a bad comparison.
1: No, not at all. It makes sense.
0: Yeah. If you think about it that way, it's like it, it doesn't feel that new. It's just a new platform.
1: Right. And you don't have to do that. Nobody was ever forcing you to slip a 20 to the host to get your preferred
0: seat. (laughs) Right. You're welcome to wait 45 minutes like everybody else, right?
1: Yes, exactly. It's an interesting concept. The whole additional revenue stream, I think, is really important to restaurants, especially now. As we said, costs are rising. Even though a lot of customers have seen menu prices go up, restaurants are really conservative about changing their menu prices because once they go up, they rarely go down. So many of them are taking a hit still from their costs going up. They're not passing it all along to the customers. Restaurants are a really, really low margin business already. Three to 5% is what they make. Say that in another way, 95 to 97 cents on every dollar that comes into the restaurant goes back into operating costs. So when you can get something like this that brings in extra money without having to do anything different, it's going to be a huge plus for them.
0: Can't wait to see like how this kind of rolls out and who says yes to it both on the restaurant side and the customer side. But I also think there's probably potential for some creative uses of it, right? Like the way Jean and George Eddies is using this kind of like, if you want the Sinatra table or this VIP booth, it might be interesting to see how restaurants perhaps take it in like a VIP sort of experience sort of direction.
1: Totally. And, you know, when I was reporting this out and looking it's interesting because you can see the technology allows you to kind of take a virtual tour of the restaurant and see the seats, sort of like Google Street View, when you can move through a street and see you know, that. So I was having a fun time because with Roca Accor, I was like, okay, well, what are the best seats? I don't know. What do people think are the best seats? It was kind of fun to see and think about like, all right, who would think that this is the best seat? Who would pay extra for this? I think that... There when I was looking, I didn't see any that were over 20 or 25 bucks and same at Jean and georgette's So I think what will be fascinating to see is if that ends up getting bumped up. You know, if people really start using this, are they going to sort of bid the price of that seat up?
0: We'll see. Yeah, we will see. I wonder where premium seating will land next, what industry it'll hit. Exactly. Remains to be seen. All right. Always a pleasure, Allie. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Coming up, CME and CBOE recommit to crypto after the FTX collapse. We'll talk about that and more right after this. The Cranes Daily Gist podcast is supported by Northwestern University's Center for Talent Development. CTD offers unique enrichment and credit bearing programs to help students identify and nurture their academic strengths. In person and online winter courses for pre K to grade 12 are enrolling soon. Learn more at ctd.northwestern.edu. This is the Cranes Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Heading into the busy travel season, Crane's John Pletz reported that air travel is starting to look like it did pre-pandemic. United Airlines is expecting a 12% increase in Thanksgiving passengers or about 5.5 million travelers, which is roughly equal to what it was in 2019. United expects 650,000 travelers at O'Hare, where traffic through September was still about 20% behind 2019 levels. Henry Hartfeldt, president of Atmosphere Research Group in San Francisco, pointed out, quote, What's noteworthy here is there are still fewer flights being operated and airfares are higher. And this is all taking place against higher inflation, higher interest rates. He continued, quote, It shows me air travel demand remains solid and airlines will have a solid Thanksgiving. He also said he thought travel levels bodes well for the rest of the holiday travel period. Pletz noted in reporting that the first sign of travel demand getting back to pre-pandemic levels came over the Labor Day holiday, but quickly retreated, according to TSA data. The number of passengers has been building for the past week, however, eclipsing 2019 levels last weekend. Pletz also noted that the data illustrates how COVID has changed travel patterns. Business travel is still about 20 percent below pre-pandemic levels, but leisure travel demand has gone up this year. Airline executives say business trips are blurring with leisure travel because more people can work remotely. For example, United CEO Scott Kirby told analysts recently, quote, with hybrid work, every weekend could be a holiday weekend, calling it a permanent structural change in air travel. Crane's Brandon Dupree reported that the American Bar Association's Council of the Section of Legal Education and Admissions to the Bar voted recently to eliminate a requirement that applicants take the LSAT or other standardized admissions test, citing a need to improve law school diversity and inclusion as reasons for the move. If approved early next year by the House of Delegates, the policymaking body of the Chicago-based Bar Association will take effect in the fall of 2025. Dupree noted that discussions over the move have been polarizing, especially over the issue of diversity. Representatives for the Law School Admissions Council, which oversees the LSAT, cited the unknown burden this move could have on law school admissions, as well as doubting the move would actually end up increasing diversity at all. But council members were quick to dismiss that line of reasoning, saying that the new proposal was not a mandate, but a way for schools to operate as they best see fit. Dupree also pointed out that the news comes just days after Yale and Harvard law schools announced they were withdrawing from the influential U.S. News and World Report rankings of the nation's best law schools, saying it was unreliable and skewed educational priorities away from diversity initiatives. The ranking system considers average LSAT scores, among other criteria, when the list is compiled. At least a dozen workers at Rivian Automotive have accused the electric vehicle maker of safety violations at its Illinois plant, according to complaints filed with federal regulators. The complaints allege the company ignored known hazards and deprioritized safety resources, leaving some workers to share respirators needed during the manufacturing process. They also detail a range of injuries, including a crushed hand, a broken foot, a sliced ear, and broken ribs. One Rivian worker said management took damaged electrical cables out of the trash and told workers to use them. Bloomberg noted in reporting on the matter that together, the filings depict an automaker that cut corners as it scaled to keep pace in the competitive electric vehicle space and some workers describe safety protocols that faded as production pressures grew. The allegations were filed over the past two months with the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration and are directed at the automaker's only operational plant in downstate normal. All 12 workers, one of whom has since left Rivian, filed their complaints in coordination with the United Auto Workers Union, which has been trying to organize Rivian plant workers over the past year. Bloomberg noted that several of the complaints describe hazards that did not result in injury but that workers feared would, and also reported that OSHA currently has open investigations into seven complaints at the normal plant. Previously, the regulator issued four citations described as serious against Rivian, including three from earlier this year that ended in settlements with the agency. In statements to Bloomberg, a Rivian spokesperson disputed workers' allegations but declined to comment on specific complaints citing employee privacy, but did say the complaints represent a tiny portion of the 6,700 workers at the plant. Bloomberg reported that even after the collapse of Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX, futures exchanges aren't giving up on crypto. CME Group chief executive officer Terry Duffy, who's been one of Bankman-Fried's fiercest critics, said he won't stop crypto futures trading just because of what he described as one bad actor. CBOE Global Markets, another Chicago exchange and software provider Trading Technologies, also recommitted to digital assets in the wake of the FTX meltdown. Bloomberg noted in reporting that executives at futures exchanges had expressed concerns about FTX's business model before the collapse. The bankruptcy of FTX potentially caused billions of dollars in losses for millions of account holders and sparked investigations into allegations of wrongdoing. It's also ensnared one of the biggest lenders in the crypto industry, Genesis, as well as Gemini, which halted redemptions, and BlockFi, a lender previously bailed out by FTX. Chris Isaacson, chief operating officer and chair of CBOE's digital board, said in an interview on Friday, quote, these events reinforce our strategy. Also saying, if there is ever a time where trust in markets needs to be rebuilt and reinforced in digital assets, it's now. He also said CBOE will continue with crypto futures trading. Jason Schaefer, Executive Vice President of Product Management at Trading Technologies, said his firm will stay the course as well, and that customers want to engage in crypto in the same way they trade other currencies. Regulators are probing whether Bankman-Fried and his associates misused customer funds. And his company's collapse is adding urgency to a Washington push to transform the CFTC into a top crypto watchdog, the agency's chairman, Rostin Benham, said in an interview at the recent Futures Industry Association conference.